0: Good morning, church. What happened to the sunshine? Um, I thought it was supposed to be nice weather today and it's raining, believe it or not, or at least spitting rain here and it's a little gray and, uh, some of you have complained that it's dark in here. Well, you know, it, it is, isn't it? And, um, uh, we need, we need, we need some sunlight. Um, I like, we have some lights, stage lights that were used during the live stream. Uh, otherwise, we'd all look like we were in liver failure. But, um, this, uh, this, this looks, this is supposed to help us look better. So, uh, I hope it does. So we've been looking at the book of, books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Today we're up to, uh, Nehemiah chapter two, verses nine through 20. Nehemiah has gotten, he's the cupbearer for the emperor there, uh, of the Persian Empire. And he's gotten word that uh, Jerusalem's in trouble. The walls are broken down. The gates have been burned. Uh, some terrible things have happened there from the end of Ezra now to the beginning of Nehemiah. And so he asks the king uh, if he can go uh, back and write that situation, go to Jerusalem and rebuild uh, the walls that are there. So uh, we're going to pick up with him at beginning uh, uh, that trip and um, uh, just how uh, things went how he met with some resistance and what he did when uh, when he got there. So let me read to you Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. Uh, This is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now, the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. And I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was that I, that was under me to pass. And then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant, and and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem." So it's interesting. Uh, Nehemiah gathered his people together and they made the trip some, uh, many years, uh, before this. Uh, it was a four month trip, give or take. Um, uh, and now Nehemiah has, uh, has done the same thing. Ezra went back primarily to get the temple rebuilt and now, uh, Nehemiah is going back primarily to get the, the city walls, uh, and the, uh, uh, gates, uh, rebuilt. And so both of them, uh, have, uh, see issues problems uh the result of sin and brokenness uh, in the community there and God plants in both of them the idea that they need to go back and do something about it now the interesting thing about it is what you remember when uh, Ezra went uh he went very differently from the way Nehemiah went and it's it it jumps out at you because in in chapter 8 of Ezra This is what he said about his trip to Jerusalem there by the Ahava canal. I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from the enemies on the road because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. But his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. What do we read about Nehemiah? When he goes in verse 9, Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Right? One, Ezra, said, you know what? We're just going to pray because we told the king that our God would protect us, and we're going to pray and fast Goes Jesus, you better come through, Right? And then, uh, <clears throat> Nehemiah, on the other hand, <clears throat> took the, uh, the army of, uh, uh, officers of the army and horsemen to go with him. Is one more spiritual than the other? Is one better than the other? Is one wiser than the other? Is one believing, one not believing, um, uh, it is funny, right? Ezra calls that They they pray and they fast, and he feels this sense of desperation that he's kind of bragged on God, and now God's got to come through. Nehemiah, no mention of anything like that. He's, he's going because God's laid on his heart to go to Jerusalem, but he's willing to go with the uh, uh, officers of the army and the horsemen. Perhaps one of the reasons why he does that is Nehemiah is actually going, not just as a religious reformer, but also as... Uh, an emissary of the king, but he takes the protection and he goes. So is one better than the other? Here's a principle that jumps out about this that I think is worth taking a little time this morning to think about. And that is two men, lovers of Jesus, two men, lovers of the people of God, two men, leaders, gifted, uh, at a critical decision point, to whether to take protection or not, they differ. They have different opinions. They do it. They do it differently. The scriptures doesn't tell us, you know, secretly. Hey, Ezra was better because he was more spiritual because he prayed and he went without protection. Uh, or the scriptures don't tell us that Nehemiah was so confident, you know, in the it was that, that Nehemiah didn't need to pray. He just knew that God would take care of him. And he does that through the soldiers that the king sent with him. Uh, This is a great opportunity for us to take just a moment this morning to think a little bit about that. Um, Because um, we are uh, one of the one of the, I guess, uh, symptoms of the quarantine and uh, the lockdown and all that stuff is the potential for us now as we come out of that to uncover all our disagreements. Uh, In fact, in many ways, I have uh, not looked forward to the reopening because when you can't reopen the decisions made for you, then all we can do is complain against the government and uh, the virus and we can't really complain against each other. But now that we're reopening and we have to figure out how to do that, then that gives and the way we we try to do that, it gives everybody an opportunity to say, well, I'm on Ezra's side. No, I'm on Nehemiah's side and mine's better. Right. Um, and so I, I think it is a, it's a it's a funny thing uh, to to see how that works as we uh, plan and look forward to uh, a gathering together Um and so I, you know, it just, it just strikes me this morning that, uh, the scriptures, uh, is very gracious here in the fact that it does not say one of these men is better than the other. In fact, both of them are, uh, pointers to us, uh, to Jesus, and they arrived at very different conclusions about how they would get from, uh, Persia, uh, to, to Jerusalem. I think that's, that's worth, uh, thinking a little bit about this morning. And, and so I want to be very pointed. I wrote a letter to the church this week and I understand that some of you, those of you over 65 in particular, are incensed that I, uh, said you should stay home. And I understand that some of you, uh, who are anti-maskers are, uh, not going to wear a mask. Okay. Um, I didn't pull those things out of my own head, you know, because, uh, by the way, not only do I have a master of divinity, but I have a Ph.D. in epidemiology. Uh, uh, Those recommendations come from our governing authorities. And I know some of you are saying, well, our governing authorities are stupid. I won't argue that, but I will say they are our governing authorities and they have given us this guidance. Uh, and the thing that jumped out at me, because I those of you who know me well know I am a rebel and I don't like, you know, tell me not to do something. If it says wet paint, I'm going to touch it. If it says stay off the grass, I'm going to make a path through it. But why have we made the decisions that we made and why did we you know, why would we say if you're over 65, for instance, and why would we say you should wear a mask? Well, the thing that jumped out at me and you've already done this this morning. In our congregational prayer this morning, who did we pray for? We prayed for the vulnerable. When I looked at the CDC website, the word that it used was vulnerable. Now, I I, you, you may disagree with kind of the general flow of the Bible, but it looks to me like God is a defender of the vulnerable that he cares about the widow and the orphan, the weak, the infirm, the sick. Um, and so as best we know, according to the science, and, and and I'll admit the science shifts daily and by June 28th, it might have shifted again. Uh, Maybe it's going to say anybody over 45 is vulnerable and then I'll get to take a, va- a long vacation. I don't know. But I, I do know this, that the the church should never be in a position to put the vulnerable at risk. So you're going to say, I'm over 65 and I'm not vulnerable. By definition, most of the time, for most of us, we need somebody else to help us understand that we're vulnerable. Right? I think I'm invulnerable. I, you know, I, 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 I honestly, sometimes I think I'm never going to die. Right. <laughs> right. So so the fact so the fact of the matter is one of the things that the church does and one of the things that the gospel does is it places us on the side of the vulnerable. So if it looks looks uh, uh, harsh to you uh, to say, you know, maybe perhaps, you know, you should think about not. Coming into a crowd if you're over sixty five and perhaps you should think of wearing a mask um, it how about thinking about vulnerability and who's vulnerable uh in uh in this situation? Having said that, the deacons aren't standing at the doors on june twenty eighth carding people, although I love getting carded uh, when somebody still thinks i'm I'm younger than twenty one Uh, But we're not going to card anybody because, you know, you're you're 66 and you can't worship if you if you want to come. okay. Uh, And we're not going to stand out there and say you can't come in the building unless you have a mask. We're not going to do that. Um, However, I am simply and the leadership of the church is simply encouraging all of us to think carefully about this. And to think carefully about one another. Uh, and and let, let me end this by saying other churches are doing things differently. We have churches in our Presbytery who last week had public worship inside. They did that. Uh, are they wrong? Are they reckless? Are we too cautious? I don't know. Uh, but I do know this, that in the gospel and in God's uh, uh, economy, uh there has to be uh, uh grace and mercy and uh, understanding and humility and repentance to bear with one another uh that we approach things the same thing in two different ways just as these godly men approach their trip from uh Persia to Jerusalem one took all the the kings uh defenders and one took nine, right, and they're both examples to us, both men of great faith that God used in profound ways right so let's 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 look back on this time, maybe forty or fifty, sixty, a hundred years from now, and say, you know th- these people dis dis disagreed or they handled uh the 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 situation differently, and they both were faithful. Could we do that? I don't know. <laughs> would that be possible? Maybe. I hope so. Uh, by by the spirit of God. So that's the first thing to jump out here at us is that these two men went at this very differently. And yet God used them both in profound ways. The next thing to note about this, this text is uh, the uh, here. Nehemiah gets the commission from the king to go and rebuild the walls And even with the king's army with him, what does he run into? Verse 10, when Senballat the Horonite and Tobiah, uh, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And then we read down in verse 19, but when Senballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing now? What a profound thing. Right. So it, it, it doesn't does we notice we remember back when Ezra went back to rebuild the temple. There was resistance then, too. Uh, and here they here Nehemiah is simply going with the king's permission, with his commission even. And with remember, with his uh, the, the king's even going to supply the lumber from his own forest for them to do this. There are people there living around Jerusalem who don't want to see the people of God prosper. Who don't want to see the welfare of, uh, as as he says here, that they were uh, uh, they were greatly displeased that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now we read that and we think. These guys, how can that be? I mean, how could anybody be against the, the welfare of the people here? And why why would they be so upset about this? Well, one of the things you have to see about this, and this is something that we don't think very much about in 2020 America, is that the story of the gospel, the story of the Bible, is a story of conflict, of war, literally. Um, we don't like to think about that. We don't like to use that kind of language. It feels weird and uncomfortable to us, but the truth of the matter is from the fall there in Genesis chapter three, what does God say? God says there's going to be a seed from the woman, a seed from the serpent, and they're going to be at enmity with one another forever until ultimately the, the serpent is crushed under the feet of the seed of the woman. And that all of this conflict that you see in the scriptures, all of this conflict is, uh, uh, is a profound kind of witness to that fact. And so when, when you repent, when you believe the gospel, when you are moved to respond, uh, and you're met with resistance or you're met with derision or you're met with your own sin, your own doubts, your own accusations against you and that sort of thing. That shouldn't catch us off guard, because the fact is, from the very beginning, the work of God has been met with resistance, that there are forces and powers and even people under influence by those forces and powers who would resist the uh good work and the the uh the advancement of the kingdom of god now that's exactly what what's happening here and so it shouldn't catch us off guard it should not uh uh strike us as odd uh in any way uh, shape or form right and it is it is interesting right it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of israel um as such, that statement about Nehemiah should remind us of someone else who came to seek the welfare of the people of God. That should remind us of Jesus. And what is it we see about Jesus Christ when he comes into the world? Well, the first thing that we see about him is he's a mere uh, child. And what happens? Uh, Herod wants to kill him. He has to flee to Egypt, right? Uh, he returns. He grows into manhood. He gets baptized and is ready to begin his public ministry. He goes out to pray in the wilderness to prepare for that. What happens? He's met there by his enemy. Uh, and he's met there with resistance. Have you ever wondered why Jesus spends so much of his time in his ministry uh, uh, casting out demons and that sort of thing, which seems like such a, 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 a crazy thing to us? Well, here he is seeking the welfare of the people of God and, you know, the forces arrayed against him don't like that and are going to do anything that they can to stop the work of God advancing. Well, that happens all the time. Uh, and, uh, we, we should be aware that we shouldn't be discouraged by that. We should be kind of bolstered in the sense that as we've already sung today, that our God is with us, just as our God was with Nehemiah. And so when God uh, works in such a way to give his people uh, the grace uh, and the vision to pursue something that is for the welfare of his people, for the advancement of his kingdom, there's going to be resistance. Um, resistance is futile in the end. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, uh, we shouldn't be surprised by that. I, you know, and I have to say to myself, I'm always surprised by that. I'm always surprised when I'm like, wait, God, this is a good thing we're doing here. Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? This is a great thing we're trying to do here. Why, why can't, why can't people see and understand that this work, this thing that you're doing is for our welfare, right? Well, uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, that's been going on and it will continue to go on, uh, until Jesus returns and Satan is crushed under our feet, uh, uh, once and for all. And then lastly, we have this great kind of story about Nehemiah that, that kind of seems to me not unlike, uh, I don't know, some kind of action hero thing. Right. So he he gets to Jerusalem. He he knows that there's resistance and he stays there for three days. And without telling anybody, he gets up in the middle of the night and he gets a couple of his friends and they get on their horses and they go out on a night ride. The night, you know, how often do you get to say go out on a night ride in a sermon? Right. That's uh, that's in a <laughs> That's in the uh, in, in the Bible, right? So they go out on a night ride to, without anybody knowing about it. You can imagine them kind of stealthy going around looking at uh, the the burned gates and the broken down walls of the city. So he goes out. Not only has he heard that it's bad, not only has he received that intelligence, but he actually goes out secretly uh, to inspect it and to see just how bad uh, it is, uh, and and it's terrible. It's a it's a it's a horrible situation that they find themselves in. Now, why is it so important that the city walls and the gates be rebuilt? Well, certainly for protection. Right. I mean, you you need walled cities were the way to go back uh, 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 during this period of time for the security. But there's also something about the health and uh, the uh, the life of the city that is demonstrated by the fact that. Uh, the entryways into the city and the boundaries of the city are in disrepair. That tells us something about who lives there. That tells us something about um, uh, kind of the state of the, the, the civic state there that uh, people aren't really caring about that. There's no sense that, you know, Jerusalem, the city of God, Jerusalem, Zion. Uh, this, the city where God meets with his people that, uh, that was the city of David. I mean, you know, there, there's a sense in which appropriate pride and the reality that this is God's place, that this is his city, uh, is in such disrepair that the people who live there are willing to live with it. And they have been willing to live with it for quite some time. You know, it's not like, you know, uh, the folks there in Jerusalem are like, wow, if we just had the right leader, we'd go rebuild the walls because we're really embarrassed about that. They've they've kind of made their peace with it and they've kind of made their peace with the fact that uh, they're in this difficult situation. Yes, it is. You know, as as Nehemiah says, you know, uh, so that we no longer suffer derision. In other words, you know. So that people won't be shaming us anymore for how terrible our walls and our gates are. Um, so, so the so the the, the fact is, um, as as he goes and and he does this, he recognizes that there's a problem with external resistance, and there's a problem with internal apathy. And so Nehemiah has quite the job here to do that. He's got to uh, overcome uh, these external forces, Sanballat and Geshem and uh, uh, um, Tobiah. He's got to overcome their resistance to what he's doing. But then he's also got to overcome the resistance of the apathy of the people who have learned to live with the broken down nature, of uh, the walls and the gates around the city of God. Um, you know it's 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 profound for us to understand that jesus christ looks at the brokenness of the world that he looks at the fact that left to our own devices uh we would we would make peace with that we would learn to live with it and as a result of that uh, kind of wallow a bit in some of our shame about that and and not be moved uh, by the glory of God, by the grace of God and by the power of the gospel to see and to do something about that. So Nehemiah uh, looks and sees the trouble uh, and he does something about it. Jesus Christ sees the trouble that we're in and he does something about it. Um, and and he does something about it by coming and living and dying and rising again for us. Uh, and that's that's a. uh That's a profound thing for us to understand, because we think, you know, that we would be in agreement with Jesus that, oh, yes, things are broken and I'm on your side. But the truth is, how often do you and I make peace with and become content with the broken down nature of our own lives uh, or the broken down nature of of uh, of the work of God? Right. So, God sees that. Jesus sees that. In this case, God sees it. He sends Nehemiah to address it. For our salvation, Jesus Christ came, uh, to reestablish, to rebuild, uh, to renew, uh, the new Jerusalem. Uh, and, uh, that's what we look forward to. Uh, uh Jesus came and began that work of rebuilding, uh, uh, his people and he will complete that work by returning to us uh, and once and for all establish his rule and his reign in the world uh, forever and ever. Um, it is a good thing for us to have somebody come to us periodically and look at our ruins and say, you know, uh, look at the trouble we're in. <laughs> uh, Sometimes, you know, especially when you don't think you're in trouble. Uh, but it is it is a good thing for some for God to come and to tap us on the shoulder and say, hey, you know, y- you've grown complacent uh, with. Uh, well, with the burned gates and the broken down city walls of your life. Uh, it's time uh, to seek a renewal and to seek the work uh, of God. Uh uh, to be renewed and to turn back, uh, right? The derision of our enemies. Um, and so he ends this, uh, by saying, um, uh, he says, let us rise up and build, right? Because he had told them of the hand that his, of his God had been upon him for good and also the words of the, that the king had spoken to me, right? Um, and he com- when he gets pushed back, he says, the God of heaven will make us proper, prosper. And we, his servants will arise and build. Right. So um, the good news here is that God doesn't put Nehemiah out there without any encouragement or with anything like that. Remember that he is so impressed. He sees the hand of God and in moving in the king's life to allow him to go Uh he sees the the hand of God and the generosity of the king to get this building project going. And so he's able to say to the people, listen, our God is with us. We should we should do this work. It's not without danger. It's not without difficulty. It's not without resistance. But God is with us. He's for us. And if God is with us and he is for us, and he has laid this on us to, this, to, to see this work through. Let's participate in the work that God has for us to follow that through. That's a, that's a great thing for us. I said this last week, and I want to I say it again to you. Perhaps you look around the world and you see that the walls of the church are broken somewhere, that they're in a mess, that the people of God are like sheep without a shepherd, and you sense in your own life that God may be saying, hey, like Nehemiah, like Ezra, he uh, might be pulling on your heart to think of going, uh, to uh, step into that conflict, uh, and to see uh, his His work uh, become fruitful. Um, pray about that. That's what Nehemiah and Ezra did. They prayed. And, uh, they had the sense that God's good hand was upon them to lead them and to provide for them. Wouldn't it be a crazy thing if one of the fruit of, uh, this lockdown was, uh, a new movement for the gospel, uh, to see it proclaimed to the ends of the earth? Um, I think that's, I think that would be an awesome, uh, thing for us, uh, uh, to pray towards and to, to, to look towards. So in light of that, let me pray. Lord, we, we thank you today that, uh, you used, uh, these men, uh, in different ways and with, uh, different methods, uh, to accomplish your good purpose. Uh, would you do that, uh, in and for and through us? Uh, we pray too, Lord, that, uh, you would help us, uh, to trust you just as Nehemiah trusted that your good hand was upon him, that your good hand would be upon us. Lord, we confess our weakness. We confess our inability um, to, uh, uh, well, it's just a hard time for us. And so I pray that, uh, Lord, you know it's a hard time for us. You know we grow impatient. Uh, You know we grow angry and bitter. Uh, You know we grow uh, resentful. Uh, and yet you still love us and you still pursue us. And so I pray that you would help us today uh, in that. Uh, Lord, at your good hand, certainly upon your people. Uh, and you're leading us uh, in this conflict against the forces that would oppose you. And so I pray that you would give us confidence to follow uh, and confidence to see you in the midst of of the world and the conflict uh, in which uh, we live. Uh, Lord, would you uh, eradicate uh, this virus? Uh, would you uh, renew your people? Uh, and would you move us in confidence uh, in your mission? We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So let's confess our sins together uh, by using uh, uh, the confession of sin uh, that's uh, uh, in, um, in our order of worship. Pray with me. Father in heaven, forgive us for attempting to avoid you. We have fixed our eyes and our hope on ourselves instead of worshiping you. We indulge in our striving instead of trusting you. We indulge in our shame instead of resting in you. We indulge in grumbling and complaining instead of crying out to you. We have been given over to anxious isolation instead of following Jesus in his mission. Yet your compassions yearn over us. You hasten to our rescue in the cross of Christ. We see that your love endured our curse. Your mercy bore our justice. Forgive us all of our sin and renew our hearts. Turn us back to you. Amen. Believers, hear these words of encouragement from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God.